we're still in it for now. We're in week 13. We've been taking a look at uh, the, the, the church as, as what we can learn from it. And people ask, well, what's this whole series about? I ran across a quote this past week from Leonard Ravenhill. I don't know if you guys know who this guy is. Uh, he died in 1995. He's actually an English minister, but he, he immigrated to the United States. Uh, I believe he became a U.S. citizen. And uh, he's like one of these quotable guys. Uh, so this is the way he describes the book of Acts. I thought, man, I can't put it better than this. So here's what he says. Acts shows us the church of Jesus Christ before it came fat and short of breath due to prosperity. So that's kind of what we're looking at here. We're looking at the book of Acts. What can we learn from it? This is the most authentic version of the church we could see. So we've been kind of bouncing back and forth because Acts bounced back and forth. It's got a lot of characters and it follows them around. So we were on Peter last week. We're jumping over to this guy named Saul who we met a few weeks ago, and he's changing his name to Paul, and because of that, I'll continually use the wrong name in the wrong time. But here's where we actually see his name changes. This is Acts chapter 13. Now, this is interesting, and I want, I want to do this kind of as a parallel. I'm going to show you in this chapter the, the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan and the way they run. And uh, the reason I'm doing that, and I actually call it the kingdom of Mammon because Mammon is the, the uh, god of this earth that was worshipped in those days, but... Basically, there's two ways you can go. You can go the way heaven's pulling you. You can go the way the earth's pulling you. And sometimes people want to know why or, or what. It's like, I'm not sure. I'm kind of in this moment where I may be being tempted by the devil or I may be being tested by God. What's the difference? I, I think if we know the character of heaven and we know the character of the devil, it kind of becomes easier to see if we're walking in the way of the Lord or we're walking in the way of the devil. And so I want to show you the parallels. So you can see the differences in the way the kingdoms are run. So that's the kind of backdrop here. So in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manain, and Saul, who will change his name to Paul in this chapter. Um, while they were there serving the Lord, now some translations will say ministering to the Lord or worshiping the Lord, but the, the actual translation for here is, is serving. It's serving the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them, and they sent them off. And I just want to say, to use a, to use a sports analogy, um, how deep was the bench in Antioch that Paul couldn't get on the dais to preach? I mean, that's just amazing to me. that this, You have this church, right? And we named five people, and Paul's thrown in at the end of it. It's like, you know, if we get time, we'll let this Paul guy preach. Because we've got these other four guys in front of him. They're really, really good. I would love to be in that church. It's so good that Paul only gets to preach once every five weeks or something. But what we see when he says serving, that doesn't necessarily mean he was serving as a teacher. He could have been cleaning the church. That could be anything, any kind of servitude is what that word covers, which I just think is incredible because Saul was completely content to be serving in a church that's just one of many. He wasn't anything special. Now, he was special because we know what he goes on to become, right? The greatest missionary in the book of Acts, and he wrote almost all of your New Testament as far as the letters go. Some of the things we know about Jesus' grace and things only came to us because of Paul's teaching. So he's an amazing influence in the church, and he was just sitting there in the pews. I mean, I know they don't have pews, but kind of in the pews. He's just sitting there completely content to do that. Why in the world would you do that? Let me, let me put this another way. He was sitting there listening to teaching from teachers who weren't as good as him. Almost, almost certainly, right? You know how that feels? I'm, okay, don't answer that because you probably say, yeah, we're kind of feeling it right now, <laughs> to be honest with you. But uh, don't answer that. But that's what he, because, because look, he knew the scriptures cold. I mean, he knew them so well. And, and he, knew, he had the first five books of the Bible memorized. He, he knew the law. There was no New Testament. There was only the Old Testament. He was an expert at it, literally a bonafide expert. He had an amazing conversion. 
when he met Jesus Christ and was blinded and then, then he could see again. And his testimony was so powerful when he started telling people it and people started coming over to the Christian church. The Jews tried to kill him over it because he was like just converting too many people. So he's kind of a rock star, but he doesn't see himself as that. He is perfectly content to see in the church as one of many because that's what the Holy Spirit told him to be. I, I want you to see that because heaven is structured where everybody submits to authority. That's the way the church is structured. And so if you look at the, in, in heaven, it kind of models that. And everybody has to submit to authority. Even Jesus, when Jesus comes there, he says, look, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And the number one job that Jesus says over and over again, if you want to say, what did Jesus teach? People say, well, Jesus told you to love one another. Yes, but that's not the number one thing he taught. He didn't speak about money as much or mo love as much. What he spoke about more than anything else was, I'm here to do the will of the Father. I'm here to do the will of the one who sent me. I'm here to do you know, the kingdom's job here on earth. That's my job. That's what I am. He has submitted to the authority of the Father. Does that mean he's not equal? Not according to what Paul tells us. He said he decided not to consider himself equal, but to, to submit to the authority of the Father. When the Holy Spirit comes, John, in John uh, 16, Jesus says this, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. So the Holy Spirit is actually submitting to Jesus Christ. I'm here, the Holy Spirit would tell you, to glorify Jesus Christ and teach you all things about Jesus Christ. This is the way heaven gets set up. Everybody submits to somebody. So when Paul got saved... He just went and submitted to the church that God sent him to, right? That's the way heaven works. Everybody submits to somebody. That, by the way, uh, was a challenge for us here because we started the church and then we tried to find an organization to put our church under and no one would have us. <laughs> and what they would tell us was, well, you're started now. Um, if, you, if we had planned you, that'd be fine, but you're already there and we have no facility to take a church that exists under our umbrella. What they were trying to say nicely without actually saying it is we didn't pick the preacher. You've already got your preacher. So, um, you know, if we could put our own preacher there, that'd be one thing, but you've already got one. Uh, and in fact, they were talking to him. So there was no way we could find an umbrella. So what we did was we actually created an accountability in the church. And I, I did this to myself deliberately. I set up uh, an, an elder ruling board of five people. I'm on it and I'm, I'm one of the votes, but I'm one of five. And I submit to the ruling of the elder board. I did that, and I, <laughs> I did that to myself, and we deliberately set it up to be an adversarial board. I don't mean that we just hate each other. Actually, we love each other, but the purpose of the board is you're supposed to come, and you're supposed to express what you believe the Lord is telling you, and you're supposed to defend that as much as you can because we want to hear from God, right? And I knew that I had to do that, and it was funny because Steve's on the board, um, and when, I, when he joined the board, I told him, I said, now, let me just give you, you know, right before we started, but let me give you a heads up. Um, this board's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. Because on the board, I have my son, Stas, and my wife, Victoria, and that sounds like I got a rubber stamp. That's three votes, and then whatever I want, I get. I said, it's not going to work out that way. Just watch. And so sure enough, the, the day that Steve joins us, we're talking about uh, this field out here. And, and I had this vision for this thing that becomes Praise Fest. Uh, and so I said, I think we need to build a pavilion out there. I'll talk to Dan and get permi permission. We could build a deck and we put a roof on it. We build a pavilion there and we'll have picnics there and we'll have outings there. But we want to, I want to have this thing called Praise Fest. And like the words weren't even out of my mouth. And Victoria's saying, no, there's no way we're doing that. That's too expensive. 
And so Stas says, yeah, are you nuts? We're not going to do that. And so everybody's like, well, I don't know. And so then Stas starts, while I'm talking, still looking on the internet, you know, we could buy a tent for a lot less than that. And, you know, and so we, all we need now is a pallet. And Dick says, well, it's really no problem to get a pallet there. And how much would a pallet cost? And I'm trying to talk, right? And they're like, and Stas is getting strong man votes to vote me down already. This is how it goes, you know. <laughs> and we, we leave there. And Steve's like, man, you weren't kidding. I said, no. And here's why we set it up that way. So we got the tent, by the way, and we made the, we made the pallet for it. Here's why it's set up that way. I believe God gives me two real, real jobs here in the church. One is the vision. I believe he gives me the vision for the church. And he also gives me the job of communicating because I'm the teacher of the church. So if God gives me a vision that I cannot communicate to my board of elders in such a way they agree with me, something's wrong somewhere. Either my communication's off or maybe the vision's not from God. And so I, you know, we set it up deliberately that way, and it does frustrate me from time to time, and I always have to walk out and remind myself, yeah, we did this deliberately, but we did it because we had to have something there. Everybody needs to submit to somebody in the church. That's how it's set up. And the reason is because when you don't submit, pride comes in. And pride has no place in heaven because pride obscures truth. If you're going to seek truth, you've got to get pride out of it. And, and there's many, many times I had my pride hurt and had to go away and say, God, I'm sorry, my pride's hurting right now. You need to take this away from me. Now, the God of mammon, or the God of this earth, devil, he doesn't do that. In, and we know this because you know what the, the world teaches you. You've got to look out for yourself, right? I mean, you've got to make things happen for yourself. If you want to get ahead in this world, you've got to look out for yourself. You submit to nobody. And we see this happen all the time in the world, right? Nobody respects authority. Nobody respects the law. No one respects anything. And what happens very quickly in this world is you find out that right and wrong go away. And they're replaced by what can benefit me, that's right, and wrong is what I get caught, what I can't get away with, right? If I can't get away with it, well, that must have been wrong. As long as it benefits me, that must be right. And that's how people think. And they don't put it in those terms, but that's really what they mean. If I got away with it, it must be right. Yeah, I didn't, get, I didn't get a ticket, I didn't get, so it was okay to speed. It's like whatever the law is, whatever the authority is, they'll just throw it off at any moment. So what's going to happen now is the kingdom of heaven is going to come face to face with, a, with an envoy for the kingdom of the devil. And so that goes on in Acts 13. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, this will eventually change. We'll talk about this next week. Actually, we won't get that far today. That'll change. But right now, Paul is still preaching to the Jews. Interestingly, by the way, he was told to preach for the Gentiles, the Jews, and all the earth. And he starts the other way around. But, you know, you can't help yourself. You're a good Jew. And they also had John as their helper. That's a pretty good helper, by the way, beloved disciple of Jesus. He's just helping. He says, I'm just helping. You know, so there's John helping. And when they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came and they found a magician. Now, a couple weeks ago, we ran across another guy who was referred to as a sorcerer, Simon the sorcerer. This is the same Greek word underneath of it, but they're actually translated usually different in the, the Bible. And the reason why is because Simon the sorcerer, he was said he could do wonders. You know, he did signs and wonders, and he scared people because he was able to do that. We don't see that with this guy. This guy seems to be more of the, what you might call a soothsayer. He seems to be able to kind of turn words and kind of really good, you know, twisting things around and, and, and making it sound right when it isn't. He's good at that, right, manipulating the truth. You guys know somebody like that? Yeah, yeah, everybody does, right? So you see that, they kind of twist it. That's who this guy is, and he's very, very good at it. Now, he's probably charming, he's probably charismatic, and he probably has a lot of uh, people who just follow him, but watch how, how uh, uh, Luke, the, the author of Acts, describes him. 
He was a Jewish false prophet. Now, I promise you that wasn't his title in the day. You know, hi, I'm Jewish false prophet. How to, uh, glad to meet you. That wasn't how he was introducing. He was just like, well, you know, I guess I'm a bit of a prophet, right? But what he was doing, he would take things, he would manipulate them, and he would twist them, and he was really good at it. And he was with uh, the proconsul. Oh, by the way, his name, and you'll see in the, in the uh, translations, usually is Bar-Jesus. You're like, what's this? And that's actually Bar-Yeshua, uh, and it actually means son of. But it wasn't son of Jesus Christ. There was a lot, there, Yeshua was not an uncommon name. We would call it Joshua. So son of Joshua. Anyway, so he was with the proconsul, and this was a man of intelligence. Now, men of intelligence like to know the truth. And that's, you know, that's one thing we know. So it's possible that he was like really just kind of a seeker and always kind of wanted to know. And, and Christianity is the new thing in the area. Everybody's talking about it because it's the church they tried to stop and they couldn't, and it keeps growing. So it's a very uh, hotly debated thing. So this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Okay, so he's reached out to him and said, hey, I want to hear about this. You know, so let's, uh, let's, let's, let's hear about this. But the magician was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Uh, he doesn't want any parts of this because, remember, he's a false Jewish prophet. He wants to be able to turn him around so the money from the region goes into the temple where he has connections, right? So this is all trying to... Di- so, so I want you to see this guy. He doesn't respect the authority of the church because he's twisting words. He doesn't respect, re- really respect the authority of the proconsul because the proconsul wants to know the truth, and he's trying to make sure he doesn't hear the truth. But he's just trying to look out for himself. This is what the kingdom of the devil does. They'll twist things. And they, don't ha- they don't have any authority at all. The problem is that what's happened is that he's this really great deceiver, and he just came up against a person who has the Holy Spirit within him, right? And the Holy Spirit isn't fooled by these people, right? He doesn't think he's a prophet. He knows he's a false prophet. He knows exactly who he is. And what, what happens next is, is Saul slash Paul gets a word of knowledge from the Lord about what this guy's doing. So he's like hearing their words and kind of like whispering in the proconsul's ear. He's not outwardly opposing them. No, these people sneak around in shadows, and that's where they do their manipulation. And so he's in the background. You know, again, we know people like this, right? They like to work in shadows and through the anonymity of the Internet now, but in the shadows, you know. And so Paul knows what's happening because the Holy Spirit reveals to him. It's like, do you remember that scene from The Wizard of Oz when the dog pulls the curtain back away from the wizard? Pope, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I yes. don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You're a very bad man. Oh, no, my dear. I, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. Okay. Anyway, so this is what goes on, right? But what's happened is the, the, the curtain's been pulled back, and the wizard has been exposed for the being of the fraud that he is, and Saul is not having it, and he looks right in the eyes. And Saul, who also knows Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. He knows exactly who he is. I know who I'm talking to. This isn't coming from God. This is coming from the devil. You are an enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make the crooked the straight ways of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, you are trying to take things that are easy to understand that this guy can clearly get and try to twist them so he can't. You're trying to obscure the truth. And that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Now, this is, this is a spirit that's involved here. You know, so whether this guy had any great uh, magical powers or not is, is perhaps up to debate. 
but certainly he's doing the work of the devil. And the work of the devil works through certain spirits, and this is a spirit of perversion. And unfortunately, the word perversion has certain connotations in today's world, but perversion is anytime you take the truth and twist it. Anytime you take something that was meant to be used for this and you twist it to use it for that, this is a perverted use of that, whether it's words or whether it's acts or whatever. And so what Paul has rightly said is, this is definitely coming from the devil because I know exactly the scripture that you have perverted and you're using for your own purposes. And he's quoting Isaiah there, actually. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough places smooth. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. He's saying, this is what we are doing. This is God. He's trying to, you know, there was a time when the Messiah and the story of the Messiah was hidden in mystery, but that's gone. Now it's plain. And now I've come here to plainly declare it to you. And this should be straight and clear. There shouldn't be any rough patches. This should be easy. And you're trying to make everything harder. You are twisting this. You are perverting this. And that's who you are. Because those who seek control through witchcraft will lose control of the devil. And that's what's happened. This is, this is a form of witchcraft. Now, we don't, you know, that word has, again, overloaded because of Harry Potter. You know, we think we know what witchcraft means. It's not really. It's basically anytime you're taking natural things and trying to twist them and to, do, to actually benefit you. But what you're really doing is the devil's bidding. And so what he's saying is, look, I know who you are. You're a son of the devil because you're trying to take our words and twist them and use them for your own personal gain, and I'm not going to have it. I want to talk about witchcraft a little bit, though, because it's a scary term. Because you know, no Christian would say, well, I participate in witchcraft every year so often. I just do, you know, like a good pipe and a good glass of wine. I like witchcraft occasionally. No Christian would tell you that. But we have to understand that whenever we go down a certain path, witchcraft is the next step. And it starts where you wouldn't think because witchcraft begins when your heart gets set against God. Now, I'm going to jump back to the Old Testament. I'm going to show you a, a, a great illustration of this in, in action. I'm going to actually show you where God calls it, calls it out for what it is. It's the same as witchcraft. So I'm going to go all the way back to the book of Samuel here. And I'm going to talk about a king, Saul. Now, Saul was the first king of Israel. And he was picked by God out of obscurity. He was, he was a nobody in a nothing clan, a nothing tribe, but God picked him to be king. And he picked him because he looked like a king, and the people wanted somebody who looked like a king, and that's why he picked him. But initially, Saul was great. He actually spoke in tongues, prophesied in the name of the Lord, and he was, really a, he was so thankful because he knows he didn't deserve this. But here's the problem. It's good to be humble, right? It's good to be humble. It's bad to mix humble with humility with fear, though. Anytime you mix fear in, perversion starts, because here's what happens when you're humble and fearful. You shouldn't be fearful. You should trust the Lord. But if you let fear enter in, here's how the way it goes. Wow, I deserve to be king. God just made me king. Hallelujah. But that means God could just take it away from me too because I've got no leg to stand on. Wait a minute. What if God takes away the kingship as easy as he took it? And all of a sudden fear sets in. And now you say, well, I am king. I can start using my position to manipulate things to stay king. And that's what happened to Saul. This is the process that he goes down. He starts out grateful but he ends up taking his kingship and trying to use it to manipulate events to become the people's king instead of God's king. And actually, and this is usually what happens, his greatest fear comes true because he does this. If he hadn't, if he just stayed close to the Lord, he would have been king forever. And Jonathan probably would have ruled after him. But instead, what he does, he's, he tries to hold on to it himself. So here's what happens. God sends him to do a mission for him. And it's, it's, really, it's going to be really cool because it's a great battle. And it's against a group of people called the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites harassed the Israelites when they left Egypt. So they've been on God's list for a while. 
And now that he has this king here, he says, I'm going to send you to attack the Amalekites. Now, they were scary people, um, and, and the Israelites were afraid of them. But God says, I'm going to be with you, and you're going to win. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to wipe them off the face of the earth because they're evil. I don't want anything of theirs coming over to yours. They are unholy, and nothing of theirs should touch anything of yours. Not the people, not the goods, and not their livestock. I want it all wiped out. I, don't, I want them gone off the face of the earth. And when you find the king, and you will, kill him. Now, ordinarily, you don't do that with the king. You hold him for ransom. They're worth a lot of money. But when you find this king, just kill him. I want you to wipe them out, lock, stock, and barrel from the top to the bottom. I don't want them on the face of the earth after this is done because they're wicked and evil people. And I will give you the victory so you can do this. And Saul said, yeah, okay. So he gets, gets his army together, and they go out, and they, do, and they attack the Amalekites, and he struck them down all the way from Havadah to Shur. And it was near the eastern border of Egypt. Saul captured Agag, the king. But he and his men totally destroyed with their swords all the people. So Saul and the army spared Agag. So, you know, clear order from the Lord, kill him. No, nope, they didn't do that. Well, why would you do that? You can get money from him, right? You know, he's powerless. We killed all his people. And then they spared the best of the sheep and the cattle and the lambs. In fact, they spared everything that was valuable. It's like they took a you know, judgment call on this. God doesn't really mean for us to destroy good stuff, just the bad stuff. They weren't willing to completely destroy any of those things, but they totally destroyed everything that was worthless and weak so we can see where their, their priorities were. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. See, here's the problem is that they disobey the Lord and God sees everything. And God has set up his kingdom this way. He's the ruler of it, and he speaks through his chosen priest. In this case, it's the judge called Samuel. So that's God's guy who will speak for the Lord. And then Saul is to carry out the orders that are coming from the Lord through Samuel to Saul. That's how it's supposed to go. Because God is still the head of Israel, right? That's how it's supposed to go. So when, when he found out, when God saw that, that Saul was not following the Lord, Lord's commandments, he goes to Samuel. He says, look, I greatly regret I ever made him king, for he has turned his back from following me. He has not performed my commandments. And for some reason that I don't know, Samuel really loved Saul. He really did. And he grieves over him. This isn't the first time he'll do this or the last. He grieves over him. He's crying. He's weeping because he sees what's happened. Now, he knows the truth. And the truth is that if you don't obey the Lord, the Lord will eventually reject you and find somebody who will, which is exactly what's going to happen. And so he's grieving for Saul, and he's grieving for Saul's family that he's gotten to know. He's grieving for all of Israel because he knows that what's happening as a road has gone, Saul's going down a road that's going to be very bad for all of them. And so he grieves. And when he woes up early in the morning, uh, he went out, uh, he, was, he cried to the Lord night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to go meet Saul, it was told him he went to Carmel. Indeed, he set up a monument for himself. And he's gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. And so Samuel goes to find him there. Now, Gilgal is a holy place. They've already done sacrifices there to the Lord when, when uh, Saul was first crowned king. Samuel, though, does the sacrifices. He's the priest. Saul's just a king. He's not allowed to do the sacrifices because you have to be the holy, you know, holy chosen by God in order to do that. And so Sam, Saul has said, okay, he sets up a monument to himself. Look at this great victory I won. And now he leads them down to Gilgal where they're going to lead sacrifices because he says, I'll just do this too. I speak for God now. That's what's happened. I now speak for God. Now, that's not that unusual in those days. Almost every other country around them worshipped their king as a son of God. You know, Egypt did it, and Rome does it, Greece does it. Everybody would do that, right? They must be put here by God, their son of God. 
but not Israel. Israel knew the true king and, and, and knew who was really involved. And so now Saul's going to step out a place he should never be because what he wants to do is solidify all the power in him. See, as long as there's Samuel out there who can tell the people what God says, Saul's really just a puppet king in his view, right? And I'm still, uh, if, if one day Samuel goes and says, Saul, you're no longer king, guess what? You're no longer king. He can't have that, so he's trying to consolidate everything. I'm in charge now. I'm in charge of everything now. I speak for God. So I will now lead you down here, and I will, I will do these sacrifices. You know, thank God Samuel's not there, right? So he can do this. He can convince everybody, ah, God told me this. It's okay. You know, we, we had this great victory, and God told me to do this. So he can say whatever he wants because the real spokesperson for God isn't there, except for Samuel goes there. <laughs> he wasn't invited. He wasn't told this was happening. All of a sudden, he shows up, and this is a little bit awkward now. You know, because he's sitting there getting ready to sacrifice stuff that he shouldn't be sacrificing anyway, but he shouldn't sacrifice anything. So it's like a double duty here. And so he's like, oh, wow. Uh, hi, 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 Samuel. You know, but he recovers quickly. He comes to him and says, blessed are you, the Lord of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And I love Samuel's response because it seems to me a little bit sarcastic and snarky, and I'm a little bit sarcastic and snarky. So I really like this because basically he says, what's that? I, I I can't hear you above the noise of all the sheep you were supposed to kill, right? That's basically what he says. I can't even hear what you're saying now. Uh, you, why am I hearing all this bleeding of sheep if you did what God told you to do? Why am I hearing the moon of the cattle? And, and Saul's kind of like, wait a minute, sheep, sheep? Oh, those sheep. Oh, those. Well, yeah, those. Okay. And the cattle and the good stuff. Sure. Okay. And ag, ag, come to think of it. But I did what God said. And Saul says, look, no, the soldiers brought them. Those darn soldiers, did they bring those sheep? I told them, you know, it's like, now it's their fault. We always blame somebody, right? <laughs> Adam blamed Eve. They're like, oh, this woman you gave me. It's those darn soldiers. They spared the best of the sheep. But you know why? They're good people. They did it to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God. I want you to see that. Your God. It's like already, you know, he's already choosing sides. We're going to sacrifice your God so he won't be angry. We're going to bribe God. Okay, so first of all, they were not going to sacrifice all of them. That's a lie. Second of all, uh, what's this business about sacrificing your God? I thought we all were Jews and we all follow the same God. What's this sides all of a sudden, right? We're going to sacrifice him, but that's okay. And I meet people all the time. I'll do this and then I'll pay him off. I'll pay God off. And really, they honestly think that. It's like, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but when I get this and I get this job, I'll tithe more so God will be happy. Like, all God wants is our money. As long as he's getting it, he's okay. Listen, just so you know, you cannot bribe somebody with something that's already theirs, right? right. So all the money in the world belongs to the Lord. He simply gives you some of it out of the graciousness of his heart. You can't say, well, the some of the stuff you gave me, I'm going to give back to you as a bribe. No, you really can't do that. So um, he kind of squirms for a little bit, and he's talking, and finally Samuel says, enough. Right, this is embarrassing everybody listening to you try to talk your way out of this one. Let me tell you what God said to me last night. He said this, there was a time when you didn't think you were important, but you became the leader of the tribes of Israel because the Lord anointed you to be king over Israel. And he sent you to do something for him. He said, go and completely destroy the Amalekites. Go and destroy those evil people. Fight against them until you have wiped them out. Why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you keep for yourselves what you have taken from your enemies? Why did you do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? He's like calling it out. He says, you don't understand, Saul. This isn't a little tight. Oh, I kind of, you know, I uh, just fudged my taxes a little. No, this isn't a little thing, you know. This is a huge thing. This is doing evil in God's sight. Why would you do that? You know, Samuel, Samuel was rightly angry. And, but watch what Saul says. But I did obey the Lord. 
You know, spirit, the, the spirit of law was wipe out the Amalekites. That's really their army, right? I did that. You know, hey, I did that. I fought. I was here fighting with these guys. We killed the army. That's what God said to do. I completely destroyed them. Okay, I brought back the king, sure. And yeah, we took the sheep and cattle. But yeah, again, I'm going to say they wanted to sacrifice them to God at Gilgal. So I did most of what God wanted. I just didn't finish it because it frankly didn't make sense to me to throw away all that good money. We have to feed this army. We have to have, ta- we have, to have stuff. I'm going to give it to my men. They're going to love me. I'll be a better king. We'll have more f- victories in the future because of that, and I'll give more money to the God, and this works out best for everybody. I don't know why you can't see it. And what Saul wasn't seeing was partial obedience is full rebellion. God doesn't view it the way that. He's like, you know, you can't get here from there. It's like, you're not, you're, not, you're not like on your way here because you stopped. And here's why it is so, so bad to be partially obedient. Because when you're partially obedient, you're confessing, I knew what God wanted me to do and I didn't do it. Right? Because he gave me three things to do and I did two of them. Well, that means you knew there was a third thing to do. Now, Jesus talks about that. He says, look, if you're a servant and you don't know what you're doing and you did something wrong, you'll be beat with a few stripes. But if you know what you're supposed to do and you did something wrong, you'll be beat with many stripes, right? So God says, this, this just tells me that you knew what I told you to do and you ignored it. That is willful disobedience. That's rebellion. And parents, you know this from your kids, right? If you have a kid that does something wrong, right, and, and they didn't know, okay, maybe a little upset, maybe take them, maybe even spank them if you have to, and then you explain to them why that was bad, right? But when you tell your kid, don't play with fire, and they go and grab matches out right after you tell them that and go find a gasoline can, that's a whole different conversation you have with your child at that point. That is open rebellion. I told you this, you knew what I said, and you deliberately disobeyed me. That is totally different, isn't it? And God is the same way. You disobeyed me. And Samuel goes on and says this, what pleases the Lord more, burnt offerings and sacrifices or obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity of idolatry. What he's saying is when you're rebellious and stubborn, God views that as witchcraft and idolatry. To them, they're the same. See, here's the thing. I don't think many Christians think they get involved in idolatry. I don't think many Christians think they get involved in witchcraft. But we'll admit sometimes we're a little stubborn with God. I'm a little stubborn. Yeah, that's idolatry. Right? I'm a little rebellious. Yeah, that's the same as witchcraft. And the reason why is because we have set our heart against the Lord. And we set our heart against the Lord, then we have chosen to rebel against him. And it's just a step. If you're willing to twist the words of God to get your way, what's the difference between that and witchcraft, which is twisting the, the nature of earth to get your way? What's the difference? There's no difference. God, in fact, God protects his word more than he protects things on earth. So when you're twisting God's word to try to get your way, you try to say, well, God didn't really say that. He said this. When you try to say, God didn't really tell me that, when you're, when you're not being faithful to his word, he's a lot more serious about that than anything else you could do. Amen. We have to understand that no one ever chooses between God and the devil. You really don't. You choose between what God has said and what you want. Yeah. That's the choice. We don't choose between God and the devil. We're smarter than that. So what the devil does is he gives us what we want. And, and so, following, and here's the, here's the other part, that is, is that Saul had this great victory, and he had all these sheep, and he's going to sell Agag for a lot of money. Actually, he doesn't, because Samuel kills him, but he was planning on selling him for a lot of money, right? It looks like Saul's plan's working, and this is the frustrating thing, because we watch other people, right? And it just looks like things are going okay over there. 
it looks like they're doing everything they want to do and God's letting them get away with it, so maybe I should start thinking along those lines too. But here's the thing, following the spirit of mammon may bring you temporary gain, but ultimately it will destroy you. Read the contract every devil makes <laughs> the devil makes you sign. In the fine print, it always says you go to hell. I mean, it doesn't matter what, the, what you think the terms and conditions of the contract are. The fine print is, oh, and you end up in hell. Because this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to destroy you. Now, following the Spirit of the Lord may take you through temporary trials, but it will ultimately make you better because that's what the Spirit's trying to do. It's trying to make you a better person. I'm not saying it's going to make your life better. I'm saying God wants to make you a better person. But many people will go, and they'll just twist the truth to justify whatever they want. And they say, well, I kind of know God wants me to do this, but I'm going to do this. But we have to understand that the declaration of independence from God is a contract with the devil. But what happens is that people don't want to see it that way. So they play games with themselves. This isn't really that bad. It's okay. I'll make it up to God later. Or this is just, this must be God because it's what I want. That's something else. You know, look how good it looks, which is what Eve said about the apple. <laughs> you know, it looked, I saw it was beautiful, and so that's why I did it. Well, yeah, <laughs> if we trust what we're seeing instead of what we're, we're being told in our spirit, we can do a lot of things. But it's amazing to me that as I become a pastor, and I've been, had a chance to talk to a lot of people, counsel with people, uh, watch people kind of you know, crater their lives, uh, it's amazing to me that everybody seems to have a price for betraying God. Yeah. What's yours? Not money. We're smarter than that. We're good Christians. No one can say, hey, I'll give you a million dollars if you betray God. It's not that simple, right? That's not how it comes to you. It's not, I'll give you a million dollars if you betray God. It's, I know God wants me to do this. I know this is wrong, but that gets me what I want. And so I'm going to do it, right? That's the price that you have for betraying God. And it can be anything. It can be things that are quote-unquote good things, right? Um, I know this isn't right, but you know, I'm tired of being alone. And so if this is what I have to do, I have to go live with them in order to uh, marry them later, I'll do that, right? I'll compromise my beliefs because I need to do that because I really want to marry that person. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's to get a house that you want. You know, I really shouldn't be doing this, but I, I can do it if I do this. And eh, I'm cheating and fudging a little bit, but that's okay because uh, I, I really want this, right? And God wants me, to, wants me to have it. It could be a job. It could be almost anything, fill in the blank, whatever contract that is, the fine print says, and then you go to hell. Because what you've done is you rebelled against the Lord and you said, I, I, I really don't care, God. I really don't care. I understand what you've told me. I've heard what you've told me. Too bad. I'm going to do this and I'll make it up to you later. It's like that old joke, you know, when I was a little kid, I prayed to God to give me a bicycle, but I realized God doesn't work that way, so I stole a bicycle and prayed for forgiveness, right? And it's like, I got this. I figured this out, right? You're twisting God's words, folks, when you try to do these things. And we like, well, you know, God loves me. I'll figure this out later. And we have to understand that oftentimes later never comes because once you take that first step down that path, it's easy for the devil to keep pulling you away further and further and further. There's a great Proverbs. And I love this because I love the way it's phrased. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. I'm going to stop there and I want to show you the imagery of this. The house of the wicked, the tent of the upright. Wouldn't you rather be in the house than the tent, really? I mean, me, I would, I, uh, why don't I get that? Why can't we reverse that? Why isn't the house of the righteous and the tent of the wicked? Because God's being honest here. You're going to see that it looks like they're getting ahead. It looks like they're going to be okay. But it is ultimately going to be destroyed. And this tent here, this tent, God's going to let you flourish in. Now which one do you want? 
if we honestly believe in the Lord, we honestly believe he, he has the, what's best for us and he's going to guide us to where he wants, we would rather be in a tent and flourish with the Lord than in a house and be destroyed with the devil. That's what I love about this. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but that ends in death. So which one do you want, the Proverbs saying? Do you want that house or do you want the tent? What are you willing to live in? Uh, and I've, I've said before, when, when, when God gets mad at the Israelites and they're standing on the cusp of the promised land, he comes to Moses and said, you know what? I give up. I give up. They, they're just wicked and evil and they won't listen. I promised you this land and I'll give it to you. Just go and take it. But I'm not going with you. And Moses sits down and says, nope. If you're not going with me, I'm not going. Because it's not about the land, it's about the promise. If you're not moving with the promise, it's nothing. That, that house is useless because it will burn in fire. The tent where God lives, where his spirit dwells, is what you need in your life. And if we start understanding this, it'll help us stay listening to the right word and not the others. Let us be what Paul challenged us. Let us not, what the Lord has straightened, let us not make crooked. Would you all please pray with me?